Hi, and welcome to Inclusion at Work, where we show the value and abilities of people with disabilities. I'm Larry Rothstein. Today's guest is Dr. Rhoda Bernard, who is the founding managing director of the Berkeley Institute for Arts, Education, and Special Needs, and the assistant chair of music education at Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Welcome, Rhoda. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Institute and what it does and your role at the Institute? Sure. So um, I founded the Institute. The Berkeley Institute for Arts, Education, and Special Needs became an entity um, out of the merger between Boston Conservatory and Berkeley College of Music, which was legal in 2016. However, the work that I do actually started back in 2007 at Boston Conservatory. So we were doing this work back then, but we didn't have the structure of an institute. Um, so the institute is devoted to increasing opportunities for people with disabilities in the arts and arts education. And there are three streams of work that we do that work toward this goal. The first is that we offer direct service programs, arts education programs for people with disabilities ages three to 93 in person and online. Um, we serve about 300 people a week in these programs, which include everything from sitting on the floor, caregiver and me style music classes, to improvisational theater, to we give over 100 private lessons a week, to all different kinds of musical ensembles and learning opportunities, um, a couple of adaptive dance programs, and the theater program. So that direct service work is one stream that um, we engage in to move this our mission forward. The second is that we offer the only graduate programs in music education and autism on the planet. I founded these programs back at Boston Conservatory in 2014, and they are a master of music and music education with a concentration in music and autism and a graduate certificate in music education and autism. We serve all disability populations in our work, but our academic focus is on autism spectrum disorder. So the students, from the, in those programs are arts educators on a mission to bring the arts to every student. And the people who teach for me in, in the direct service programs, as a staff of about 40 people now, um, all of them are either current students or alums from those graduate programs. So we, we train them all and we keep the, the quality extremely high. The third stream of what we do is professional development. This is to educate artists, educators, administrators, people in the field, um, anyone who's interested in how to teach the arts to people with disabilities. So the intersection between arts education and special education. And we do this through a number of different avenues. We have an annual conference, we have an annual symposium. We do study groups, workshops, classes. I teach online courses. I taught um, in summer 2021. I taught um, a couple of online courses that I designed for the Kennedy Center, which was really fun. Um, we also have a very active blog. We have a free online searchable database of resources for educators. We have a new podcast, um, the Able Voices podcast, which began releasing episodes in June 2022. And we release episodes twice a month. Um, and a bunch of other similar initiatives that we're really trying to push the work 
and the field forward. Now, most germane to this conversation is another thing that we do that doesn't really fall in one of those streams, and that is our new career readiness program. So in the fall of 2021, we launched the Nurturing Leaders Program. It is a small career readiness program for adolescents and young adults who have already been students in our arts education programs. So we're working with people we know. And these folks get career readiness classes. We partnered with the organization Partners for Youth with Disabilities. They do wonderful work, particularly around career readiness and mentorship. And we are a dissemination site for their career readiness curriculum, which we can and have adapted, but we use many components of it. It's quite excellent. So we have career readiness classes. All of the um, participants are assigned a mentor. And after they do one semester of career readiness classes, they get a paid internship at the Institute. So the first group of six that started in September 2021 started their internships in February 2022. We had some students who were assistant teachers who were helping out the instructors in our arts education programs. We had some students who were administrative assistants doing really important work for me in this office. Um, my files have never been more organized. It's pretty cool. Um, and we had some that um, work as what we call greeters. They open our door and greet people as they arrive. They usher at our events, that sort of thing. So those internships continue after a, a semester and deepen and get more responsibilities. And we keep bringing in more students to this program. We brought in in the spring, three additional students who qualified. Um, so the plan is we do these internships here and then folks who are ready, we help them get an internship that we've raised the money, we can pay them, but elsewhere at Berkeley perhaps, and or with one of our partners. So for a wild and crazy example, let's say we have a student who loves the ushering thing. Well, we have a relationship with Speakeasy Stage Company. They're about a mile away. I can't imagine if I called them and said, how would you like an intern usher that I'll pay to work for you? <laughs> that they're gonna say no, right? They're gonna say, that's a fabulous idea. And yeah. then I've gotten this person a way into another organization. So um, that's where this program is. Um, early stages, we've really just done the first year. We did, um, we had a consultant do a program evaluation, just how are we doing with this so far? And everyone's super happy. It's been very successful. The quality of our, our instructors teach the career readiness classes and the quality of those is really strong. The students love it. They enjoy the community. The parents are excited because the students are learning skills. Um, it's a win-win all around. But I thought for this conversation, you would be interested in knowing about that program. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it's just amazing how many things you're doing. And I, uh, But it's not surprising since I've known you now for at least five years. Uh, and just so that the listeners know that No Limits and the Institute have a partnership and we're uh, trying always to promote each other and what we're doing. So, Absolutely. and also I, I do know a bit about Rhoda's background, uh, which is similar to mine. And that's why I'm gonna ask the next question, which is 
we met for at least two and a half years and didn't discover that we both grew up in the same town south of Boston and had other similarities. But I'll let you both tell your background and how you got involved and interested in this field, because it's obviously something you're extremely passionate about and you bring a lot of intelligence and innovation to the area. Thank you, Larry. And it's funny. So where we grew up, it actually plays a role in that. You've heard me tell this story. Yeah, before. yeah. But, um, yeah. So you elegantly, in the media savvy way that you have, asked the question brilliantly. Uh, so um, I call myself a proposition two and a half survivor. I was entering high school the year that proposition two and a half went into effect in our um, the similar town, the same town where we grew up. And when I was entering high school, um, the high the public high school there had a very strong arts program. And I was super excited to get involved in all the different things. I had been singing in choirs and I played piano. I was really excited to get involved in all of that. We walk in and it's all been cut. So to back up a little bit, Proposition two and a half is a law that was passed in 1979 and went into effect in 1980 in Massachusetts. It's modeled after Proposition 13 from California. And you've got to take yourself back to the late 70s where people were really concerned about their property taxes in particular. So what this law did, and it's still on the books in Massachusetts, <coughs> excuse me, is it does a few things, but the main thing it does is that it caps the percentage increase in property taxes for any city and town in Massachusetts, and there are over 300 of them, in a given year at two and a half percent. So no city or town can raise its property taxes by more than two and a half percent in a given year without doing something that's called an override, which is a grassroots referendum. Those are hard to get passed. So when this went into effect, all kinds of things got cut. So my school, I lived two and a half miles from school. My school bus was cut. Foreign language was cut. The entire arts program in the high school was cut. So I went from being super excited to, um, you know, participate in all these programs to walking to school. Um, although what ended up happening was my neighborhood, the families formed an association and they hired a bus. So we paid for the bus. But anyway, um, <laughs> taking that bus to school eventually and not having any arts. And so I say this because I come to this work from the perspective of, of advocacy and of access. I, I believe that every single person must have access to the arts and an arts education. And it was taken away from me. And what ended up happening is the woman who had been our choir director in middle school called a meeting the first week of school at the Papaginos across the street of all the people who had participated in choir. And she said, look, you all know it's been cut. I can't teach you, but I don't want your music education to end. So we need to find a way to do this off school grounds, outside of the school day. You can't pay me no matter how you want to do it. You can't pay me. I'll do it. So we had auditions in churches. I made it into show choir. We rehearsed in my parents' basement because there's a big space with a piano. I mean, we, we made it work. And it's yeah. all because this one person was so dedicated to ensuring that we continue to have an arts education. She and I are still in, in touch. She was a 
really significant person in my life. And that started me as an advocate. We were singing at school committee meetings. We were going to town meetings and, you know, performing and we were having bake sales. And the way we quote unquote paid her is we did things like mow her lawn and babysat her nieces and nephews, you know, anything we could do to feel like we were giving back to her. Um, so by the time I graduated from high school, some of the arts had been reinstated, but not, not the complete offerings. They are now, thankfully, but um, back in those days, not. So that really lit a fire under me around access to the arts and arts education. And really my entire professional life since then has been devoted to um, providing arts education and arts experiences for everyone and making sure that everything is as accessible as possible for all people. Yeah, you were definitely taking it to the streets as they used to say. Uh, and you went on to, uh, if I'm correct, to Radcliffe and the New England Conservatory and ultimately to get a doctorate at the Harvard School of Education. Uh, so I, I did my undergraduate degree at um, Harvard University. It wasn't really Radcliffe in those days. It, it no, was Harvard. It was um, Harvard, yeah. And they, they, they had sort of merged. Um, and um, then I did um, some additional bachelor's and, and graduate level work at New England Conservatory um, in jazz voice performance. Uh, my undergraduate degree was in political philosophy because um, it was way too interesting not to study it. Um, I did every musical thing I could and a lot of, a lot of drama too, music and drama outside of academics. Um, and then, yes, um, New England Conservatory, jazz voice performance. And that's where the light, like I got really excited about teaching music. And then I went to the Harvard Graduate School of Education, um, got my master's in their arts in education program, and then stayed and did my doctorate in a department that at the time was called learning and teaching. They have since reconfigured. Um, but I finished um, with my doctorate. And then from there, I applied and um, got the job at Boston Conservatory where I started in 2004. And, and then with the merger, I was brought over to Berkeley in 2016. And what were you teaching at the Boston Conservatory? Uh, and I think that's when you started uh, the focus on uh, disability, yeah. right? So I was the chair of graduate music education there. So I ran graduate programs that trained people to be public school music teachers. And it was sort of ancillary. Um, you know how it is when you take on an extra, pro a set, a, like an additional project that you don't get paid for, but it takes your heart away. That's mm -hmm. what it was. Um, so it was that work. And then when the merger happened, they were able to create the Institute and let that be um, one of the big focuses of my work. Um, that and I'm now directing graduate music education, but it's at Berkeley. That's the assistant chair part. So take our listeners through how this experience occurs for a student that comes in with parents, what the parents are thinking about, what the student is going through prior to coming to the Institute and, and what you observe and how you sort of triage the whole experience so it, it works uh, for everyone involved. So before I even start that, I, I have to say, we can't generalize, everyone's experience is so unique, right? So I, I can give you some 
scenarios that are that I frequently see, but I'm not, I don't by any means mean to say that things only happen in, in certain ways. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and and we also, you know, depending on the family and the student, we might be meeting parents of a three-year-old or we might be meeting a self-supporting 45-year-old adult, right? So we're dealing with all different um, age levels and uh, musical experience and life experience. Um, so there's no audition process for our programs and really only one of them requires any prior experience at all for the others you can be and that's our summer camp and that's only because the students work in groups the whole time so we can't provide individual instruction for a beginner but for, in all our other work you can be a beginner or you can be advanced or anything in between what we do have is an intake process. So it's not like you can just go to our website and register for um, one of our classes or lessons or ensembles or the theater program. All of it goes through an application process. And that's an online form that the family fills out. And that provides us with more than just demographic information. There's information about the specific challenges and strengths that the student brings um, and the reasoning and some of the um, motivations behind why they are interested in the program they're interested in and that sort of thing. Um, that application is reviewed by my team and then recommendations and questions are given to me and then I reach out to the family and then we have a conversation and it very it varies, the format of the conversation might be Zoom, might be phone, might be in person. And it depends on the information that we've gleaned from the application, um, what's important. So for example, because Larry wants scenarios, um, we might have a family whose child was just diagnosed and they seem to like music. And we have offerings for children as young as three. So that would be one kind of situation that we see a lot. Um, another might be a student who shows some really strong musical talent of any age, someone who might have perfect pitch or who might um, be able to remember music really well, or who might have tried to take lessons and be really as really interested in it, but they can't find a teacher who, you know, supports them or who plays an instrument but doesn't have an opportunity to be in an ensemble. And we have a rock band and a chorus and a ukulele ensemble and iPad ensemble. We have a bunch of, and a lot, bunch of different ensemble opportunities. So we have some students who really need to and want to play with other people. Um, or it might be someone who um, has always wanted to take private lessons, could be an adult and hasn't been able to and they'd love to try. So it's a wide, wide range. Um, and depending on that, um, there are some, some other elements that come into play, right? So a lot of times someone who's applying um, might not be a musician or a theater artist or a dancer and might not really know what's involved in the programs. So for example, um, we sometimes have people who apply to take private lessons who don't own the instrument that the student wants to study. This is an issue because you have to practice between the lessons. But if you don't know how music lessons work, you wouldn't know that. God knows if you watch like Glee on television, everybody just walks in able to do everything. There's no, you never see rehearsals. You never see practicing. Right, it's, not, sure. it's not sexy, you don't see that. So um, people wouldn't know. 
So I have to explain that to them. Some people have a little tiny keyboard with, you know, two inch long keys. Well, you can't take piano lessons on that. In fact, there's very specific requirements. So I, you know, we have to explain some of that. So that's one set of issues is not understanding. Sometimes we have people with very young children who want them to take voice lessons. It is not anatomically a good idea to study voice until you're at least 12 because the larynx and all the anatomy around it are still growing and developing and that you wanna wait. So there's some of that kind of education. Then there's another nexus of challenges, let's put it that way. Um, so if you, I'll, I'll put, I'll actually have two nexuses of challenges. One is if you are in a family where there's a person with a disability, or if you are an adult with a, dis a disability, um, life is hectic and life is full of a lot of extra layers. So um, that can be a little challenging in terms of, um, we do a lot of, because there's so many folks involved in our programs, we do a lot of communication over email and sometimes emails don't get seen and you know we can't call everybody. So we finding out the best ways to communicate. Um, we try, if there's more than one sibling in a family that's working with us, we try to schedule things either simultaneously or back to back to just make driving and you know the mechanics easier for folks. Um, so there's there's that layer. And then I'll add a different layer, which I know, Larry, you're particularly interested in, which is um, it is a really unfortunate but true fact of our society that um, individuals and families with um, a person with a disability um, often deal with institutions and systems that promise one thing and deliver something else. So there's a lot of that kind of baiting and switching. Oh yes, we can support this person. We have everything that they need or, you know, um, we can provide them with exactly what will help them to succeed and then come to find out no. Or we can provide you with um, tuition assistance, come to find out no. So um, we are very, very clear on what we can do and what we can't do. So part of this application process is because we are not set up as a social services agency. We cannot bring into our community anyone who is self-injurious or it could be injurious to others. We cannot bring into our community anyone who might bolt out the front door. We're in the city. That would be very dangerous. We need to keep everybody in the community safe. So that's another piece of it. Um, that's the stuff we can't do. Educationally supporting the students, differentiating instruction, giving them the attention that they need, making sure that they can succeed at what they're studying. We can do super duper well, including managing behaviors as long as they're not injurious. We can do that super, super well. Um, and when we promise something, we deliver it. Everything from, I if I say I'm going to call you at 10 a.m., I call you at 10 a.m. Yes, you do. Um, it's, yeah, well, it's, it, I do that. That's sort of a thing I do in my life anyway. Yeah. But it, and I think it's important to respect people's time and to respect people. Um, but 
in these relationships, it's important because it begin, it shows that we can be trusted. And my whole team is like that. Um, we do offer tuition assistance for all of our programs. And we, we, I raise that fund funding every year. And we are very proud to say that no one has ever been turned away because they can't afford it. So we find a way, which is great. Um, so we, we deliver on every promise that we make and we make sure that what we do is of the highest, highest quality. And that Larry comes down, as you know, to the people. I have an amazing, I have several teams that work for me and they're all incredible. So the instructional team, which is about 40, is just incredibly skilled, talented teachers who are, have years of experience in this work, but who are also just amazing humans. And then I have an administrative team who are devoted, competent, collaborative, and a joy. So I'm very, very fortunate with the teams that I have. Um, I will say a story that I love to tell. Um, there was a family who had just started with us several years back, it was before the pandemic. And I, you know, I come in every Saturday, we do our work on campus on Saturdays. We do also have a very robust online set of offerings. Um, and that happens, the online stuff is all over the week, but the, the in-person stuff is on Saturdays. And I, I come in every Saturday to see how things are going and to talk with people and to meet with people and to observe and all of that, to make myself available. And a mom came up to me, this mom, maybe three weeks into the, her son's first semester with us. And she had tears in her eyes. And she said to me, there's so much love here. Larry, I can't teach people to do that. I can't require that. That just happens because of the people who I have working with me. They are incredible. Yeah, well, I think it's representative of you and your passion, though. I think it, it I stems so. from, yeah, no, it's, it's quite clear. I mean, it's, having uh, been to a, a couple of the conferences and seen the ensembles uh, and watched the people in the audience, I mean, there really is a great spirit uh, that you invoke, partly by your just your intention of what you're trying to do. And, and that sort of attracts the kind of people that want to join with you in this journey to uh, bring arts education to uh, people with disabilities. What is your perception of what's going on out there in the rest of America in terms of, uh, uh, because I know you bring in teachers from around the country and given what's happening with our schools and the sort of the assault they're under on multiple dimensions around critical race theory and other you know canards that are being floated out to get political power over the schools and angry parents and, and, and Fox News. <laughs> so what, what is your sense of how well are we doing as a country in this area and what do we need to do to you know try to get closer to what you're accomplishing at the Institute? We are woefully, uh, poor at what we're doing across yeah. the country. So I do a lot of professional development for people all over the country and all over the world. Um, some over Zoom and some in person. I just booked flights to Nebraska. I'm going to Nebraska in November. Um, 
you know, between keynotes and workshops and presentations and hands-on stuff and consultations. Um, the, the good news is that arts educators and educators in general who are without a doubt obliterated after the last couple of years. I mean, just every teacher I know is completely obliterated, but the arts educators and other educators are very hungry for, um, for this work. They really want to reach everybody and they don't have the preparation and they don't have the tools and they want them. So there's a demand and that's fabulous. I think the pandemic um, elevated something called social emotional learning, which let's hope that nobody gets their hands on, no nefarious um, elements get their hands on that because that's a really good thing. There's a lot that's really good about social emotional learning when it's done well. Um, and the arts feed into that very nicely. Um, so the educators don't have the tools that they need to reach every student. The students with disabilities don't get the resources that they need in order to succeed because the schools don't get the funding. So there's IEPs and there are mandates that can't get funded because the schools don't have the funding. Um, the range of what it is to have a disability is expanding. Um, there's wonderful work being done by um, many advocates um, advocates, including Rebecca Coakley, who spoke at our conference last April, um, this past April, um, about thinking about long COVID as disability. And it is, right? So when we really think about disability, it's not just what goes through people's mind first, which is someone using a wheelchair, right? It's all sorts of invisible disabilities, but also all sorts of chronic illness, all sorts of mental illness. It's, you know, one in five, right? And I bet it's higher than that. Yeah, it's so, growing. That's what's happening, so, it's getting bigger. And we are woefully poor at understanding what that means for not only education, but for our broader society. Um, and I don't have to tell you, I mean, there's some incredible advocacy going on, but, um, to get that to the highest levels of government and not only at the state level, but federally um, is very, very challenging. Yeah, one of the other podcasts I, I did was with a researcher from Harvard, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, her research shows that in the last 14 years, people with disabilities have advanced 3% and other groups are advancing at much faster rates. So in, a, in some respects, they're actually falling behind. Yes, exactly. And ironically enough, uh, diversity, equity and inclusion programs uh, that don't include African-Americans with disabilities or Hispanic people with disabilities or women with disabilities and on and on, indigenous exactly. people with disabilities <clears throat> are doing a form of prejudice that they're almost completely unaware of. Uh, it's an intersectionality problem. So there's this wonderful scholarship about intersectionality, but we're not walking any of that theory or talk. No, not at all. So, I, I mean, it was, uh, I'm not surprised by your description of, of where the schools are right now. Um, so where do you see the Institute going and where do, you, where do you see yourself going with all this great accomplishments? At the same time, there's this sort of sea surrounding the Institute that needs 
to be churned constantly to see if there's any progress <laughs> being made outside of the Institute. Sure. So um, as an Institute at Berkeley, I have to raise my entire operating budget every year. So bluntly, you know, on this podcast for the whole world to hear, uh, that's a challenge. It's a big challenge. Um, so we do as much as we possibly can with what we have, and we, we can't do more till we get more money. So we have some wonderful foundations that we work with and many repeat donors. We have some individuals and we're working for more, but um, we, in order for us to greatly expand and live the dream that I would love to dream, I just had a conversation with folks at Berkeley the other day about how I would like one of these institutes on every Berkeley campus in the States and globally. Um, you know, in order for anything like that to happen for us to, you know, affect large scale change, we need a whole lot of funding that we don't have. We can do what we do now really, really well. We're continuing to add programs. We're adding now a lot of programs that are called non-performance programs, things like we added music history, music technology. We're gonna add ear training and music theory to provide a more well-rounded musical education. We are exploring some partnerships around visual arts. Um, gets a little tricky around facilities, but we're working on it. Um, and our grad programs are growing. We've got great students and some nice new faculty that have joined us, which is fabulous. Um, you know, we, we, we can keep doing the streams that we've been doing. You know, the podcast is new. We have some new initiatives that we've been able to fund, fundraise for. That Nurturing Leaders program, we got some nice funding for. But I am beholden to the fact that I'm on the hamster wheel of raising money every year. Uh, having said that, um, I can also say um, I'll be a little mysterious. When is this going to air? When is, gonna, when is this going to drop, Larry? I don't know. So we, we have to go through a, an editing process I don't, in the next two or three weeks, I would think. Would okay, so then I have to be mysterious. I'm going to uh, be mysterious. All right. Well, it's always good to have some mystery in an interview. Yeah, here's the mystery. Our name is going to change. Oh, really? This fall. I will not tell you the new name. That's the mystery because I shouldn't be this public about it. Okay. But the phrase special needs is problematic. Um, yeah. So when we... My work started in 2007 at the conservatory in this regard, and we were called the Boston Conservatory Program for Students on the Autism Spectrum because it only worked with people with autism and talking to the constituents, that's how they wanted us to describe the program. Then we came here and we made an institute and we surveyed all our constituents and the parents said, I don't want the word disability in the title. And the teacher said, it better say special needs or my principal won't know what my professional development has been in. So we called ourselves the Berkeley Institute for Arts, Education and Special Needs. And that has served us well. And the last few years, that um, the problematic issues with that phrase have increased to the point where when I tell people the name, I'm always kind of doing the little asterisk. You yeah. know, that's not a great name. We're looking for a better name. Well, now we have the name. It's been approved. Our advisory board has approved it. Berkeley has approved it. And we are in the process now of preparing for the rebrand, including a, we're shooting a new video at the end of the summer and we're printing all new things and all new website and all new, all new, all new, all new. Um, and sometime this fall, date to be determined, the name will change. The work is the same, 
but the name is going to change. And the name allows us to align our philosophy with our name. Right now, they are misaligned because of the problem, problematic nature of that phrase, special needs. So we're going to be able to be aligned, but I will let the reveal happen for itself in good time. Okay, well, I'll be anticipating it, but I think it, it sounds like a good move. Uh, you know, the nomenclature is always changing and uh, it is limiting in, in a sense. And um, I, the name that we have chosen is one that I think will last for a long time. You can't argue with it, okay. at least <laughs> well, not now. I wouldn't argue with you anyways, but <laughs> that, that, um, well, you know, uh, uh, I'd like to just tie it into the larger world of work. And uh, as you know, I took singing lessons from an opera singer for a couple of years. Yes. And it taught me a great deal about creativity and taking risks and failing and then recovering from failure. Uh, and I think one of the things that's happening in the world of work is the uh, rapid development of technology to create teams like Microsoft Teams and uh, Slack, which is uh, owned by Salesforce, and there are other ones coming on board. And yesterday I saw an ad for MetaPortal, and there was a, a woman at her home, and then they used the little squares, and I actually saw in the left bottom square a woman in a wheelchair. So I think even Meta uh, is becoming aware that one of the uh, 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 beliefs of par particularly parents with children with disabilities that their kids could get a job and work from home, which was not possible largely because corporations couldn't think that way, but because of the pandemic, now everybody's thinking that way. Yes. So the opportunities to uh, assign uh, uh, openings in businesses because people with disabilities bring value and the value they bring is their creativity just because of the disability along with their other skills and intelligences is greater than ever. And so I think that the more the arts are developed in this area, the more of the creative side of people with disabilities can expand and that expansion can actually become an enormous benefit when they go get a job. Absolutely true. I agree with you 100%. We <laughs> have this one little career readiness thing that we're doing, but all of this work um, provides you with skills, a whole like frames of mind and a whole sort of set of working and thinking habits that um, contribute to creativity, contribute to um, collaboration, lots of aspects of the, um, the discipline behind this work um, of today's working life, absolutely. And, and a sense of yourself that you, yes. you're, you, know, you, you have value and you can perform. I, you know, I, <clears throat> I remember that young student playing the cello, uh, a Bach sonata that may have yeah. been written because one of his sons had autism and, yeah. and others uh, um, that I've heard, other students who have amazing voices. Uh, you know, their talent is evident and they certainly should be able to uh, you know, audition for Broadway plays and uh, take a shot at uh, getting a lead role even. You know, all those opportunities should open up at least within the world of music as well as other areas. So uh, I wanna respect your time. And I, 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 since I met you and I went to that uh, opening that you had, the launch of the Institute, I've never been uh, 
less than amazed <laughs> at all that you do and the passion you do it with and the accomplishments you have already done. And I, I'm sure that the future will only expand in terms of the impact that your institute and you will have on Boston, the music and artistic community and the rest of the world. <laughs> I, I certainly hope so. We now have students who are with us online from all over the world, which is really, really cool. Um, Thank you, Larry. This has been such a pleasure. And I look forward to it. Please let me know when it drops. I want to make yeah. sure to get a listen. Okay. Thanks, Rhoda. Bye. My pleasure. Bye-bye.